We are, we've been, if you haven't been with us, we as a church, we've been walking through the story of the Bible. We started in Genesis, and we've just been going through the, the, the individual stories of the Bible to show how they all actually fit together to tell this one big story. Starting at creation, it moves into eternity, and it tells us a story about God and his people, and the love relationship that God has with us and once for us with him, but is impossible without the person of Jesus. And we've seen how every one of these stories points back to Jesus, that the big story, at the end of the day, it's all about the person of Jesus Christ. Christ. And so um, I told you we're going to kind of pick up speed here, and we, and we are. So last week we added new motions, and we've got even more this week. Can you believe it? So you take one hand out like this. Your other hand is going to be your imaginary gavel, and bring it home. There you go. Good job. All right, so let's see if we can. That's for judges. Do you see why that? Okay. Um, so it's from the beginning. We've got God, creation, fall, promise, flood, tower, patriarchs, exodus, law, conquest from last week, and now judges. There you go. You guys are good. Very obedient. Um, We saw last week, if you were here with us, what we saw was God, he finally brings the people of Israel into the promised land of Canaan, something he had promised for hundreds of years, made back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And as always, God is good on his promise. He brings them into the promised land. And what he shows them, he tells them, if you will trust me, if you'll obey me, I, in my power, will drive out the enemies in the land of Canaan, and I will give you rest. And we saw last week how that's a type of the rest that we can have in Jesus every single day, that Jesus has already won our battles, that he has risen from the grave. There's no more lands to conquer, and if we rest in him, we can find peace and joy today and, and hope for tomorrow. And at the end of Joshua, what happens is, um, oh, here's the... Cain and I always forget to follow all my slides. That's where all the people we had said last week, this is where they all kind of settled uh, and, uh, and gave, got the land that God allotted to them. Then at the end of the book of Joshua, he, he gathers up all the leaders of Israel and, and he has these parting words for him, uh, for the people. And, and what he tells them, he says, if you continue to trust and obey God, I will continue to drive the enemy out of the land. See, they hadn't wiped out all the enemy yet. There were still other nations that were living in the different settlements with them. And he says, if you trust me, if you obey me, then I will drive them out for you. But then he says, if you don't, and he issues a warning. He says, if you turn away uh, from him, and, and meaning God, this is Joshua talking, and cling to the customs of the survivors of these nations remaining among you, and if you intermarry with them, so he says, if you don't drive them out, if you disobey me, and, and you keep these nations around, and you even intermarry with them, here's what will happen. Then know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive them out of your land. Instead, they will be a snare and a trap to you, a whip for your backs, and a thorny brambles in your eyes, and you will vanish from this good land the Lord your God has given you. Remember the covenant he made with the people of Israel. He said, here's the deal. If you obey me, I will bless you. You'll stay in the land. You'll have crops. You'll have lots of babies. It'll all be good. But if you disobey me, then there will be curses and you will be, have, you will have no children. Your crops will not grow. And in fact, he says here, I will drive you out of the land. And this is the covenant relationship that they've entered into with God. And what we're going to see today Okay, Judges is a bummer. I'm just going to warn you. And Judges is this book that, that captures um, exactly what happens in, in, in that clause. Judges is a history of the total and utter failure of the people of Israel to trust and obey God. And we see the consequences of what happens in such a situation. 
Now, Judges, it covers the first 350 years of life in the promised land for the nation of Israel. I told you it wouldn't be a bed of roses. And, and the title of this book, Judges, it comes from the leaders of Israel at this time. The kings, they're coming later. But for now, they have judges. And when you think judges, don't think her, okay? This is not like a judicial judge primarily. This is more of like a military leader. And what happens is they're going to get oppressed by these nations, and God will raise up a military leader to help give them victory, to rescue them from these nations. And, and so what we're going to see here, I'm just going to warn you, that if, if Judges was a movie, it would be rated R, okay? This thing is filled with promiscuity and violence. And if you've read the book, you're familiar with it. Uh, I mean, it's almost like a Quentin Tarantino movie. Like, there's, there, there is um, Ehud, the left-handed judge, who stabs the big fat king in the belly. His sword gets lost in the king's fat. He ends up dying in a bathroom, of all places. You remember the story with jail, and she, she jams a, a, a tent peg through the temple of, of this guy. Um, there's child sacrifice. There's, there's prostitution. There's civil war. And then don't even get us started on Samson, right? And the sordid tale of that hairy hunk. And, 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 over, and, and over again, and I'm not trying to be sensational, I'm just trying to show you, I and mean, this is real, and, and if you're going to read this with your children, just get ready to answer some questions, right? Daddy, what does that mean? I'll tell you when you're older. Um, viewer discretion advised is, is basically what we're saying in this book. And in chapter one, what we see is, is Israel's failure to believe the promises of God and to, in obedience to him, drive out these surrounding nations. And over and over again, you see the different tribes completely fail to do what God had told them to do. And they don't drive these nations out. Now, you ask, why drive these nations out? We, we touched on this last week. Remember, Israel has been called to be a light in a dark world. To be a megaphone, to shout the name of Yahweh to the nations and show the world what he looks like when a nation follows him and trusts him and obeys him. This is what it'll look like in hopes that they might worship Yahweh as well. In hopes that they might put their faith in him and look for that same deliverer that they've been promised. And they've been called to be a holy people, set apart from godless nations. And this, this driving them out will avoid them becoming like these nations, developing their moral system, or lack thereof, worshiping their gods. But what we see is instead of doing what God had told them to do, they just keep them right there. In fact, they start marrying these people, just what Joshua had told them not to do at the end of Joshua. And sure enough, they become to look almost indistinguishable from the Canaanites. They look like them, they talk like them, they worship their gods instead of the one true God spitting in the face of Yahweh. And so that in Judges 2, what we see is, it's kind of this, it's cool, it's this overview of the rest of the book, and it kind of shows us this cycle. And in Judges 2, it says, this is what's going to happen over and over again in this period of Israel's existence. And there's this cycle uh, of, of sin, of oppression, repentance, deliverance, and, and peace. So, so what happens is, as Israel becomes like Canaan, as they start to, to, to intermarry with them, they start to worship their gods, they disobey the true God. And so God allows them to be conquered by these other nations, just like it was in the covenant. And as they're conquered by them, they have to serve them as slaves, which calls them to cry out to God for help. And in his infinite mercy and grace, he comes along to them once again, 
uses one of those judges to set them apart from said oppressing nation. They, they experience this time of peace, and then in that time of peace, they start looking at themselves and start thinking they're all that and the proverbial bag of potato chips, and before you know it, the cycle hums once again. And it happens over and over. In fact, it's not really a cycle. It's more like a spiral. And what you see if you read through the book of Judges is that it goes, the judges and their people go from okay to bad to really, really bad. And, and that's, in that sense, it's, it's a tragedy of a story. And what I want to do this morning, we don't obviously have time to go through all of the judges. And so I just want to peek in on one of them because these cycles are the same in each one of them. Um, and I want to look at the life of Gideon and what, what God might be teaching us through um, through his life. And so just set the scene for you. Israel has just come out. Typically, it's about 40 years, sometimes 80 years of peace. So they're coming out of this time of peace. And then what happens is they start to do evil again. It says the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. So the Midianites come in and it's brutal. They are so oppressive to the people of Israel, they start hiding in the hills The Midianites start stealing their cattle, all of their food. And in verse 6, it says, So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites, and they cried out to the Lord for help. They're tired, they're hungry, they're scared. And they cry out to their God for help once again. And he comes, and and his reply, he says, Look, I'm the God that rescued you out of Egypt. I'm the God that gave you this land, and I told you what to do, and you haven't been doing it. Would God have been completely justified to allow them to continue to wallow in their suffering? Absolutely. But in his undeserved grace, just like with me, he sends a deliverer to rescue his wayward people. And he comes to Gideon. Now, it's interesting here. He calls Gideon the mighty hero, and you'll see why that's ironic in a second. The angel of the Lord, verse 12, it says he appears to Gideon. Now, the angel of the Lord, a lot, of, a lot of people believe, a lot of scholars would say that the angel of the Lord is actually, a, in the Old Testament, is a physical appearance of Jesus. Uh, now, we're not, I'm not going to die on that rock. Uh, I couldn't, you know, can't prove that for sure. We're going to see that Gideon does, is having an encounter with God. Uh, exactly how he's manifesting themselves, it's above my pay grade. Um, but I definitely think there's the possibility there for this to be uh, the physical uh, Jesus here in front of him. Either way, so... So the uh, angel comes to him, and this is what he calls him. He says, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Now, it's funny that this is the, the phrase that he uses. Because, you see, when God looks at someone, he doesn't see them the way the world sees them. Uh, you take, like, a parent, and they look at their baby. And regardless of how cute their baby actually is, they can look like this, or they can look like Mr. Bean. <laughs> and they still think that they have the cutest most adorable baby in the whole wide world, right? And that's legitimately, and sometimes I'm like, are we looking at the same baby? Like, this is just a big old blob of ugly, right? And you think, and I'm, I'm not hating on any babies in particular, but some babies aren't cute, right? That's just, that's just reality. Um, but, but that's how you see your kid. You see him differently than anybody else. And when, when the world looks at Gideon, they see this, this timid little coward, and, when, and to be fair, he is. You see, Gideon has his small man's complex. When God says, I want you to rescue Midian, this is how he responds. But Lord, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I'm the least in my entire family. He says, I'm the weakest dude in the weakest family of this puny little tribe of Israel. Who am I to be used by you? And I love the Lord's answer here. And he says to him, I will be with you. 
and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. He goes, I don't care who you are. It's not about you. If the creator of the universe is with you and doing this for you and in you and through you, it's, it, I don't care who you are. And so what we see is the world, the world looks at Gideon and rightly sees this nerdy little wimp, okay? I mean, if, if Gideon, he's the kid in gym class who's getting picked last, okay? You know what I'm talking about? The one with the glasses and the inhaler, Okay? Mom has him wear a bike helmet even to recess. You, you know exactly who I'm talking about, all right? And, and, he, and he says, he looks around, Gideon looks around, and he goes, who, me? You talking to me? I don't know why he's Italian all of a sudden. You talking to me? How can I rescue Israel? Forget about it. He said, I can't. <laughs> Focus. God says, I don't care what the world sees. I will call you a mighty hero if you'll let me work through you. We can crush these fools. And to which Gideon replies, he goes, okay, I'm in, but I'm going to need a sign. Which, which this is audacious that he would even say. In fact, he does this again later in the chapter where he asks for the fleece and the dew and kind of the grass thing. And he's asking, and here it is, the angel of the Lord, Jesus himself, he's looking face to face at him. He says, I've asked you to do this. You can do this. And he's like, eh, I'm pretty weak. I need a sign. So what he does is he takes his, his rod, and, and he takes this rod, and, and Gideon's got some raw meat and some bread sitting there. And he takes the rod, and he just, he cooks it instantly. Which, for the record, how sweet would that be, right? You just like T-bone, flame on, right? Like a carnivorous Harry Potter. And, and so, so he sees this, and when he sees God do what he's done, this is his response. When Gideon realized it was the angel of the Lord, he cried out, Oh, sovereign God, I'm doomed. I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. You see, when people in the Bible have an encounter with God in a physical manifestation, this is always the reaction. They fall on their face. They say, I'm not worthy. You're holy. I'm not. This is the God that we serve and that loves us. To which he responds, it's all right. Don't be afraid. You will not die. And Gideon's encounter with Jesus, it changes him. And he does some great things by the grace of God. Number two, Gideon defeats Midian. I liked that because it rhymes. Gideon, he he gathers, the Midianites, they gather this posse. the The Midianites, the Amalekites, and some other nations. And Gideon, he gets these 32,000 men, okay? He musters them up, pretty formidable army. And the first thing that God says, he throws him a curveball. He does this weird thing. And if you've read the story, you know where this is going. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you, okay? That's rarely a bad thing in the military, right? You got too many men. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. So God says, no, the odds are too good for you. And I'm afraid that you're going to win this war and start bragging about your awesome army instead of the God who delivered you. So he says, here's what you're going to do. Tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid, they may leave this mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. He says, armor check. Anybody who soiled themselves, they're gone. And he moves them from 32,000 to 10,000. Not a very strategic move, military-wise. But then he goes, here's the next weaning process. He looks at it, he goes, no, 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 no. No, I'm still afraid that you might have a chance here. That if everything fell just the right way, 
you might win because of your own strength. And I want you to understand there's no possible way without me, you would die. So he goes, weaning process number two. Take him down to the watering hole. And he says, anybody who cups water with their hands and laps it like a dog, that's my, that's my kind of guy, right? But if they bend down, they drink directly from the water source, they're gone. And so what happens here, and you say, why is he doing this? I don't know. I'm just a preacher. Ask God. I know it, it, his ways are beyond my ways, even when they seem weirder than what I would have done. I'm glad he's in control and not me. So he says, this is how it's going to be. There's only 300 men who cup the water and drink like that. So he says, everybody else, 9,700 of you, pack your bags and go home. There's 300 men. We've gone from 32,000 to 300. And he goes, perfect. That's exactly what I want. Because now there'll be no shadow of a doubt as to who it was that rescued Israel. And so he says, let's go to work. Now here's the scene. We're in this valley, this huge valley. The Midianites, the Amalekites, these other nations. And what it says in chapter 7, verse 12, it says this nation is like a swarm of locusts. Okay, it's just, this is a vast sea of people. It says you can't even count their camels, which is like some real bragging back in Bible times, right? And so here's a swarm of people, and then there's Gideon and his 300 men, this small little band of water cuppers, and God says this is exactly where I want it to be. The odds are not in your favor. You know that point in the James Bond movie where it's like, this guy, the odds are impossible, right? Pierce Brosnan's going to die, right? Or who is it now? Uh, Daniel Craig, whatever. Um, God says, you watch. You watch what I'm going to do. And so here's Gideon's game plan. He divides the, the 300 men into these three groups of 100. And he gives each of the men a hand grenade and an assault rifle, okay? No. What? He gives them a, a clay pot and a trumpet. And what is God's deal with winning battles with the brass section, right? We've been seeing this now for several weeks, and he says, this is the game plan, okay? Just after midnight, you're going to yell really loud, break the pots, and then blow your trumpets. And look at what happens. All three groups blew their horns, broke their jars. They also have torches. They held their blazing torches in their left hands and the horns in their right hands, and they all shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And then what happens is these men, when they wake up, this this locust army wakes up in the middle of the night, and they hear this clashing of the jars, and they see these torches. It it sends them into mass chaos. They start running into each other like a Three Stooges routine. They actually start killing each other, Scripture says. And those who haven't been killed flee for the hills, and God defeats the army army of the Midianites without so much as a thumb war. It's unbelievable. And then Gideon sends these other guys and says, chase them down and go get them. And the people of Israel, because of who God is, experience 40 years of peace. Now, I'd love to tell you that, that they all live happily ever after, but that's chapter 7. We've got 14 more chapters in Judges. And what we see is the cycle hums period of peace, and this is heartbreaking. It says, as soon as Gideon died, I don't think scripture wrote that on accident, as soon as Gideon died, the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping the images of Baal, making Baal bereath their God. They forgot the Lord their God, who had rescued them from all their enemies surrounding them. Nor did they show any loyalty to the family of Jeroboam, that's, that's Gideon, despite all the good he had done. 
after everything that God had done for them, everything he walked his people, miracle after miracle, when the going got good again, they forgot their God. They cheat on him with these other, just these pieces of wood and metal. And it's unbelievable. But that's my heart too. That's my heart too. And if we do not apply this to our own lives, we've missed the point of the story. Three things and then we'll be done. Number one, we, I think we learn from this story to be in the world and not of it. Be in the world, but not of it. You see, much of Israel's problem, it stemmed from their disobedience to God in the first place. He had told them, drive out the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Electrolytes, okay? That was, uh, I'll cite Kim Webb, that was her joke in home group. I don't want to plagiarize. Um, They made peace with what God had said to drive away. And similarly, you and I, we're called to put to death the things of this world. Now, I want to be clear on this. Paul said our battle is not against flesh and blood. We're not saying the, bat, the enemy is not people. That's the mission field. That's who we're called to love and point to Jesus. He said the battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's the spiritual powers. It's this world's system. It's sin and it's Satan and it's death that are the enemies. And like Israel, we've been called to stand out from this world to live lives that are so different, to love so radically that the rest of the world sees. They can't help but see God in us in the way that we live. But all too often, like Achan, we get caught up in the sparkly little things of the world. We get lured away by them. And before you know it, we become just like the world. Now, sadly, I think we often reduce worldliness to outward things, drinking and cussing and smoking and tattoos and gluten, right? Am I right? Sorry. I don't need it anymore, but I can still make fun of it. We, we make worldliness a list of outward actions. Don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang out with girls that do, right? And that, and that we think that if we kind of just abide, we'll hide in our little church walls, and if we just kind of stay away from the world and, and, and don't do what they do, then we're good. But here's the problem. Worldliness is not just an outward thing. It's a matter of the heart. It's not just what we do. It's what we think. It starts from the inside out. And so for us, we've got, to, we, we, we've got to shift our focus from the temporary and think eternally. And a couple of examples, and I'll probably step on some toes. I say this out of love, so just bear with me. The first one, I think we focus, a lot of times, we focus too much energy as Americans on retirement. Now, hear me clearly. There's nothing wrong with planning ahead, with being fiscally responsible. I got a Roth IRA a few years ago, okay? I mean, we're not, we're not saying that, but what we are saying is too many people put all of their effort. I'm going to work like a dog now so that I can retire early and live for myself. And it's cruises, and it's timeshares, and it's golf courses. When we've been called to live for eternity, and Titus, he says, we're instructed to turn from godless living and from sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom and righteousness and devotion to God. While we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. Looking forward. He gave his life. Why did he give his life? To free us from every kind of sin. To cleanse us and to make us his very own people totally committed to doing good deeds. He saved us. He freed us. He set us apart. And hear me, for something better. Is it sinful to go on a cruise? Maybe some of them. But but no. No, remember, it's a heart issue. 
Hear the heart of this. What does my heart desire more? Caviar and fleeting pleasures. We're seeing a lost soul come to Jesus and changing eternity and resting in my Savior. And here's another touchy one. Our children. Okay? So I hear. I think we often find ourselves buying into the way that the world thinks about our children. And we think, man, I got to get them the best education. Okay? I had them in preschool by six months old. Give them the best education so they can get the best job so they can what? Make money and live in comfort. And man, I'll tell you, we say, oh yeah, 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 and go to church. You know, love God, that too. And we just kind of put some Jesus sprinkles on top of the American dream, right? It's really kind of what we do. And, and, And again, we look no different from the world. Now, is there anything inherently wrong with work and education? Of course not. Those things are from God. But shouldn't we be teaching our children first and foremost to follow Jesus? First and foremost to find joy and rest and life in Him and to love their neighbor and to preach the gospel and to define success by the impact we're making for eternity, not your 401k and the square feet of your home. To be in the world and not of the world. And there's a difference. I'm not suggesting we go and hide in a convent somewhere. We need to, we need to, if you don't have a friend that's an unbeliever, we're doing something wrong, right? We need to be in the world to love people lavishly. But the question is, who's being influenced more? And Romans 12 says, don't conform to the pattern of this world. Don't become like the world and the worldly way of thinking, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. You want to know what God wants for your life? Let him change your mind so that you set your heart, you set your mind, you set your desires on the things above where Christ is, not the things here on earth. Number two, they are weak, but he is strong. God, he taught cowardly Gideon a lesson. He said, I'm going to whittle you down to the the point where there's no doubt as to who wins this battle. And and like Gideon, I tend to look at myself. I said last week that the needle on my scale tends to drift away from from Jesus' sufficiency towards self-sufficiency. That's my default heart disposition. And so what God does is he goes, all right, we're going to start whittling down your army. I want you to trust me. So that I don't want you to, to, to trust your beautiful body, so I'm going to give you the hips of a 95-year-old man. <laughs> All right? Thank you, Lord. He says, I'm going to put you in this position at this church. There's no way you could do this on your own strength. I mean, man, I, I, I'm figuring out how to follow Jesus, just, just Justin, let alone how to help lead 200-plus people in that direction. Are you kidding me? He says, you can't rely on your skill your charm, your dashing good looks. And what he does is, is he whittles me down until I realize there's nothing I can do on my own until I have to fully and completely and desperately depend on him. And he looks at me, desperate, cowardly me, and he goes, finally, something I can work with. Now watch what I'm going to do. I learned this phrase years ago, and I love it. It's God is attracted to weakness. See, when we're proud, when we're trying to do things on our own, he can't work with us. We're stiff-arming him by our own arrogance. So he says, when you finally realize that you can do nothing, and you allow me to be your all in all, 
I will give you victory. I will lead you. I will guide you. You just trust and obey. Surrender to me. And when you're weak, I am strong. And finally, I don't know about you, but I think this, this judges cycle that we've looked at, the cycle, a journey through judges, could easily be the cycle, a journey through Justin's life. This is, the, this is the tendency of my heart. I get lured in by the thinking of this world around me. It gets me into trouble every time. I cry out to God, and once again, in his grace and his faithfulness, he comes to my aid. And then like Israel, even after God has showed himself in amazing ways to me, I get comfortable in that time of peace, and the cycle starts all over again. But here's the good news. There's grace in the sin cycle. There's grace in the sin cycle. That even when we fall down, even when we run from him, when we come back to him each and every time, he's the, we're the prodigal son and he's the father that hikes up his robe and he runs to us. And he embraces us in his arms and he says, welcome home, let's slaughter the calf. But beyond that, there is also in Jesus a victory, a way to break the sin cycle. Now, without Jesus, it's not possible. But with Jesus, and I love this verse in 1 John, it says, for every child of God defeats this evil world. Here's a promise for us. And we achieve this victory, how? Through our faith. If we're going to defeat the sin in our lives, if we're going, if we're going to, if we're going to make a change in our lives, it's not from me working harder, trying harder. It's through my faith. Faith is only as strong as its object. So the question is, what is my... What is my faith in? That's the real question. Verse 5. Who can win this battle against the world? Not Justin. Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus has overcome. When he rose from the dead, he had completely and forever conquered sin and death for us. And if we can stand in his victory, we can experience a break of the sin cycle. And I think the Christian life is simply this. Growth in our lives is a shorter distance between when the Holy Spirit shows us sin and we take it to the cross. That's growth. We're, we're, this side of glory, we're going to keep sinning. We're going to keep making mistakes. But will we turn to Jesus, whose yoke is easy and his burden is light? See, these stories and judges, they serve a warning to us. There's a result of turning away from the God who loves them. Like we said, it's not a cycle, it's a spiral. And there are real consequences to sinning against God. And it's serious, and we don't want to sugarcoat that. But it also points us to their hope. Not, not their own ability to obey God, not Israel's ability to try harder, but in their need for a deliverer. And it points them toward that promised king who's going to come and ransom captive Israel. And this is what we've been looking. This is the thread we've been pulling throughout our entire story. Adam and Eve, the fruit's still on their lips. And God says, I'm going to send somebody from the seed of the woman who's going to crush sin and death for you. And then he preserves Noah on the, on the ark, him and his family, because he had made that promise to Adam and Eve, and he never turns back on his promise. Then he looks at Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and he says, from you, I'm going to send this guy that's going to come from your nation. He's going to bless all nations. And then we later find that's the nation of Israel, and they're in Egypt, and God, because of that promise, he rescues them out of Egypt by his might. He brings them, drags them through this wilderness, even though they keep turning from him. He gives them this land that he had promised, and he says, if you'll hang on to me, if you'll continue to trust me and look forward, there's a deliverer coming. And today, we look back on what they looked forward to. Jesus did come. He came to this earth he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for my sins, rose victorious. And if I trust in him, 
I will experience strength today and a bright hope for tomorrow. Father, we're weak. And oftentimes we don't want to admit it. Some of us in this room, it's an insecurity thing where, where, we, where, we, where we know, we, we look at our weakness, but we get caught up with our weakness and we think we can do nothing. Our eyes are on ourselves. Some of us, it's arrogance and we think we got this. Our eyes are on ourselves. Father, I pray that we would acknowledge like what, is, what Gideon experienced, that man, without you, we can do nothing. But with you, Romans 8 says, we're more than conquerors. You've already defeated it for us. The battle's won. And God, I pray that you would bring us to a place where we'd fall, we'd collapse on Jesus as our Savior and bow the knee to him as our Lord. And that through him, we'd experience a break in that sin cycle. Lord, I don't know where people are at today. Maybe some people are just getting beat up. They find themselves on that spiral downhill and it's going fast. Lord, do they turn to Jesus? Find grace, find forgiveness, and find victory. Father, I pray that we'd be a people that in our desperation for Jesus, in our rest in Jesus, we would look so radically different from this world that they would see our light and worship the same God we do. It's not because of our strength. It's actually because of our weakness. And we point people to the Savior. And it's in his beautiful name that we find rest, that we find victory, and that we pray these things. Amen.